This is the Pro-AV Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the MarketScale Technology Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and thanks so much for joining us today on another conversation. As you're listening along, make sure that you're subscribing to our various podcasts and going to our website, marketscale.com industries for more technology conversations around IoT, AV, and more. So today's conversation in partnership with Diversified is bridging the worlds of higher education and cutting edge technology and AV. So 2020 has obviously been a year of major shifts in technology use. And in the higher education space, this has only been magnified by compounding challenges of student engagement, administering assessments, developing online curriculum, et cetera, et cetera. So with our podcast panel today, we're hoping to bring break down the challenges and preparations that higher education has had to endeavor since COVID hit, as well as what will persist for the space moving into the spring semester as universities continue with a blend of online, hybrid, and in-person learning. So for on-the-ground perspective of these challenges, we're going to be chatting with two higher education technology experts. Mike Berger, IT Manager of Classroom Technology at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and Joden Belafato, Technology Enhanced Spaces Lead Analyst at the University of California, Merced. And to better understand which technologies are aiding in these shifts in higher education, we're also joined by Mark Knox, Vertical Solutions Sales Consultant for Sharp NEC Display Solutions, and Brad Thomas, Director for the Product Solutions Group at Diversified. So we'll start with Mike Berger. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Pleasure getting your perspective. Same with Joden Belafato. How are you doing? Doing well. Fantastic. Again, really looking forward to getting that on the ground perspective from both of y'all's universities. We've also got Mark Knox on the line. Mark, how are you doing? Doing pretty good. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you for joining us. And last but not least, Brad Thomas. Great to have you as well. Yeah, thanks for uh, having us join today. This is great. Of course, it's going to be a great panel. So to start, I want to ground some of the effects of COVID to the two universities that are present here today. Uh, so most of these questions here are for Mike and Joden. Of course, everyone else can chime in if they have other thoughts. But uh, Mike and Joden, this is going to be pulling from y'all's experiences. So let's start here. What have been the biggest technology challenges that your university has faced in transitioning to a COVID learning environment? Give us that general overview, and then we'll get more specific. The biggest challenge in actually all of this was getting equipment. Uh, you had a lot of universities, uh, a lot of higher, you know, just whether higher education, a lot of K through twelve trying to get technology all at the same time in large quantities. So just getting the equipment was the largest challenge of it. I'll agree with Mike. Uh, honestly, for us, the biggest technology challenges uh, were trying to facilitate what was normally sort of purpose built in our campus classrooms remotely. So trying ways, trying to find ways to put together equipment packages for faculty to make sure they could provide as much of a rich experience for their students attending remotely, but from the comfort quote unquote of their home, uh, that became really challenging in the arts for like dance classes and performance classes, trying to find technology that was good enough to do what they need to do, but easy enough for someone to be able to do it you know, on their own because we weren't going to be there to help them. 
Let's dig in a little more specifically uh, to some of the various challenges that higher education has had to face. One of the biggest ones has been student outcomes in general. Obviously, transitioning mid-semester to an online learning environment is going to have some effect on students. Uh, and then as they've had to uh, you know, restructure how they learn and what tools they use, that has led to some challenges in retaining information and, uh, you know, understanding best ways to study, best ways to engage with the curriculum. So what have y'all seen on the ground at your universities for how these various challenges have impacted student outcomes? I think it's especially that first uh, that first semester in the spring when we, you know, shut down in the middle of a semester because there was no warning. It was basically here, you're not coming back after spring break. And you know, we weren't prepared, students weren't prepared, faculty weren't prepared. The university here spent a lot of time trying to trying to train faculty, trying to provide them with uh, stuff they needed. I think the heavier concentration was on the, the faculty end just because they're the ones interfacing with the students and it was easier to deal with it from that perspective and have that information passed on than it was to try to, you know, target all the students. Yeah, I mean, I would offer at least the way UC Merced's been approaching it. We we actually, I would say, only have a sort of flirtation with understanding the, the like the real student outcomes. You know, it's sort of like doing research. This is going to be something we develop through surveys and assessments over time to sort of gauge how student engagement was before COVID, how it was during, and how quickly we recover or pivot towards. Um, maybe different ways of engaging with students and uh, you know in, ensuring uh, positive outcomes. It's been a real drumbeat on the campus for the last year or so. Uh, student outcomes, learning outcomes, has become first and foremost in the way, so most culturally, and the way we do things. So that kind of helped us um, in a little ways. From what we've seen, kind of making sure everyone has a little bit of give and take. So you know, trying not to turn the screws too hard on certain types of assessment and performance, but also trying to make sure that the quality of the education and engagement stays high. So it's, I, I would offer that being flexible and pragmatic has been probably the best ways to maintain some level of sanity. Another big challenge with maintaining positive student outcomes is the integral factor of tackling student engagement. You know, obviously, transitioning means that students had to readapt to um, new platforms, whether that is video conferencing or uh, completely decentralized or asynchronous learning models. So how has your university tackled student engagement challenges? And then on top of that, educator engagement as well, uh, both prepping them for delivering the curriculum, um, but also getting them engaged with the technology themselves. Usimer said what we found sort of initially was the students weren't quite as shook by having to move remote. Um, you know, people like to throw that term digital native around. I'm not a, a super fan of it, but their, their familiarity and comfort was sort of the digital space for con consumption, you know, whether that's YouTube or social media, it was trying to align that engagement behind sort of the strategies that we were doing, uh, for classes. University in Knoxville here, you know, I guess initially some of the students were excited about, about not having to come to class, but I think it was a real challenge for them 
we have a teacher resource center here on campus that that has been in existence for quite a while to help faculty utilize technology in the classroom. As soon as this was announced that this that we were going to be going online, they really talked to other universities. They talked to you know trying to develop some best practices for for teaching online uh, and get with faculty and and provide assistance for them. So there was a number of things that were were done to try to. You know, I wasn't directly involved that the number of things that were done to engage them. But one of the other things that uh, they did a quite a bit of was basically people popping into uh, their Zoom calls. Uh, of course, here here in Knoxville, Peyton Manning's a, a superstar. He popped into a few of the different classes. Uh, they had several former athletes. They had uh, uh, John Gruden popped into one of them. So they, you know, they try to engage some people with some Knoxville connections just to pop in unannounced into some of these classes, which I think kind of helped with the interest of it a little bit between that and just, you know, trying to develop best practices. So this is Brad. I'll, I'll jump in here as well. So as I've talked to many universities across the United States, I mean, there's just a really good positive trend of uh, more engagement with professional development, with instructional design, with the technology that is coming in from IT and the communication structure around that. Some of the universities have, uh, uh, you know, the, the professional development or the instructional design, you know, really reports directly into IT. Others, you know, are decentralized a little bit. But as a whole, I've really heard that that engagement has really increased. And I think that that's going to draw some some conclusions to how we teach uh, the technology that we bring in and and really start a, a different conversation uh, than we've had in the past, potentially change our thinking, broaden our strategies a little bit. And, and that's some of the feedback that I've certainly heard. So like y'all mentioned, a lot of this technology, uh, especially in-class tools, interactive video, video conferencing, was already in place pre-COVID. Uh, and uh, you know, some students were familiar with it. Some educators were familiar with it. But I think the key word there is some, right? The major challenge was a lack of standardization to get all educators and all students comfortable enough to get the most out of these tools. Some found it easy. Some didn't. Some could maneuver the intricate details. Some couldn't, et cetera. So how has this dynamic evolved since COVID? And how has your university adapted to get everyone, students and educators, on the same page to get the most out of these solutions? You know, we had video conferencing as a standard at the university, uh, a fairly robust system for that already in place, although it wasn't heavily used for classes. You know, it was already there. Faculty, for the most part, were somewhat familiar with it. I think the biggest challenges and the biggest things we had to make changes to were security in it. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've heard a lot about, you know, the different hacks into into these video conferencing systems as, as the semester started. You know, there's been a lot of security changes to, to adapt to that. You find great variations in that of what, uh, between the haves and the have-nots. And so the university spent a lot to try to make sure that those that didn't have good internet would get would get hot spots. Those that didn't have sufficient computers to participate in this were able to were able to get them. You know, so I think they they spent a lot trying to make sure that the students had the resources they needed. You know, to be successful and be able to you know participate in these classes. 
For us, uh, very similar to what Mike was saying, uh, we have decent uh, video conferencing infrastructure, but it was very heavily utilized by the administration. Uh, the UC system did have already have a system-wide Zoom contract in place, which was super helpful to kind of springboard into a couple of things. You know, we talked about technology deficits, but Zoom suddenly becoming this fixture of remote teaching, they were drowning. Like it was really hard to just get licenses or some things out of them. They, they picked it up quickly, but that initial time in March was a little rough around the edges for sure. So in the classrooms, we actually were teetering on the brink of depreciating all of our lecture capture systems at UC Merced. It was not popular with the faculty. It was not well utilized. Um, the technology in general is, I think, somewhat misunderstood uh, insofar as its effect on what value it brings to students and the you know the, the fears and concerns around students not coming to classes because they can just sit in their dorm room and and watch the the class there. And here we are today, where that's kind of how it's playing out. We have not had a ton of spaces on campus be used for synchronous or even asynchronous classwork. Uh, it's mostly been done all remote from the you know from from faculties, homes, uh, and students attending. Similar to what Mike was talking about, we also had a lot of conversations. UC Merced is somewhat unique in the UC system. We cater a lot to first generation. Uh, low-income students, and um, that that means there's simple things like food secure, food insecurity, uh, housing insecurity, internet insecurity. Some people don't have great internet connections, uh, and so I know one concern we made was that we opened our dorms and let a limited amount of students kind of come and live quarantined in the dorms, but it guaranteed they got fed, it guaranteed they had a good internet connection, it guaranteed uh, they had the quiet spaces to study and get their classwork done that they may not have gotten if they were back with their parents or back moving in with other families and whatnot. So the, the technology has sort of, you know, responded or, or we've put things in place to make it useful. But I think the the behavioral things have been a little more interesting to try and like dissect. And, and, you know, and COVID's been you know, the two popular words are a catalyst and an accelerant. And so, whereas we were kind of leaning away from distance learning and lecture capture, now I'm getting a lot of questions about how do we transition to that? Or um, we were maybe eking along and now we, we were eking along with Zoom and now we're like, you know, full pedal to the metal on Zoom. So that's kind of perspective where we were. And I'll, and I'll add into that, um, you know, Joden and Mike, it, fascinating that, you know, we talk, we, you know, we lean towards technology in the conversations, but it's fascinating to me that, the, the you know, there's this big human uh, concept, uh, you know, that we uh, need to address, right? I mean, what is the, what, what is the mental state and how do we make sure that our, our kids have, you know, the basic infrastructures? That's, that's, you know, I, that's a really great perspective, Joden. Thanks for sharing that. We've come to a place, especially, you know, from the manufacturer standpoint. Um, and I think, Joden, you mentioned this earlier, this, this, this whole concept of value, right? We're, we're using technology to, make sure that we can keep our institutions afloat in terms of instruction. Zoom is the backbone of a lot of universities right now. Um, unfortunately, uh, a lot of universities were not prepared uh, for for this. Obviously, you know, no one's seen this coming. But now we get into a question of value because now every university, for the most part, is an online university. Right. So 
when we start talking about value and how do we justify uh, tuition, right? When when my Zoom experience at school A is the exact same, so to speak, as, as it is at school B, then we talk about different learning styles, right? Just, just like you talked about earlier, when you have uh, multiple students in, in a room physically, you can often cater to different learning styles simultaneously, whether that's, you know, through verbal, visual, whatever. But now everything is centered you know, right on a screen in front of you at, at your house. So we're, we're trying to use technology and trying to use interactive video and things like that to communicate the value, but also to justify the value of, of a lot of our institutions. And like I said before, unfortunately, a lot of the schools weren't prepared for anything like this. But, you know, at the same time, it, it, it was hard. I mean, even going back to Mike's original comment, competing with every other school to get equipment at the end of March and beginning of April, you weren't just competing with universities. I mean, I, I talked to a very large financial institution headquartered in Manhattan uh, just the other day where the gentleman said he had to set up 19,000 remote employees in two weeks. So you're now competing uh, from a technology standpoint with with every corporation, with every university, uh, essentially sometimes with every K-12 district to try to figure out, again, how do how do you keep your institution afloat from an instructional standpoint, but also how are you deliver, delivering value uh, to those students and ultimately, um, you know, trying to increase those those student outcomes? Yeah. And I'll, I mean, circling back to the, the challenges and stuff, the, the two things that jump out to me that as you talk more about some stuff, especially on equipment or things is the, the helping people understand that equipment will largely just increase fidelity, but not necessarily do more than that. And that's, but that's still important. You know, it was a lot of eye opening done when I would pull up my laptop and I would say, here is my, what does Apple call it now? My eyesight camera in the top of my, my MacBook. Now let me show you what this $30 Logitech camera looks like. Oh, well, that's, that's pretty good. That's much better, but it's not great. Okay. Well, here's the $100 Logitech camera. Oh, wow. That's actually, oof, that's, that makes a big difference. And, and the way that, the instructor or the participants are perceived because the, you know, whether that's a, a bias, we all sort of have a built in cognitively to not focus on things that are lower fidelity. We try to make sure that the faculty were presenting themselves with the best sound and the best video possible from their rooms. So that didn't give opportunities for disengagement. And then around the, the flipped classrooms and the active learning stuff, we have a couple of those rooms we've built. We built four on campus and, and the faculty do love them, but the flipped part is still really hard for them to get um, in some cases. And so we're even looking at how do we create maybe not lecture capture, but like teaching studios. We have a learning glass studio and that thing is great. And so it's like we had all these sort of disparate technologies that were all over the place. And something that COVID has helped do is highlight like, look, you can take this, combine it with this and combine it with that. And you develop a fairly rich and powerful piece of content that you can serve to students and then follow up with them. The, the creativity of being able to introduce different types of technology to, again, make sure you impact students that have different learning styles simultaneously because if everything is going to be done done over video and you're you're using learning glass then of course you want a high fidelity camera to be able right. to to capture those images right but then you also want to make sure that that you've got great lighting right that something we never thought about before and and maybe you you want to make sure that you you don't have a glare on your learning glass and and that your your facilitator is mic'd up something that we we never considered before so again it comes down to that creativity that 
not not only adds value to the university in the mission and the vision of the university, but also just catering to each one of those those learning styles, which just like we talked about before, increases those uh, student outcomes. And something that is also sometimes lost in this conversation is with the faculty. And, and I, Brad's heard me talk about this and when we've been talking through possible strategies that our campus is going to take going forward or even in response to COVID. And that's it's a term known as cognitive load. Um, and so sometimes we forget that you know, a faculty member isn't just walking into a classroom and turning the technology on. They are walking into the classroom. They're seeing the students. They're trying to get their lecture straight in their head. They have to pull out their laptop. They have to hook it up. There's all these things they have to do, both physical and sort of cerebral. And if, you know, if we overextend a computer analogy, there's just only so many resources someone has to multitask and manage all those things. And so one of the big challenges we had was when we developed these tools or these resources for faculty teaching remotely is minimize that cognitive load. They're already mm. stressed. They're already having to flip their classroom and deconstruct and reconstruct their curricula. The last thing they want to hear is that no one can hear them or no one can see them or they sound yeah. grainy or they sound like they, they need that. They need that to go as smoothly as possible because all of the things that they actually are focused and care about, which they should be because that drives sort of the learning outcomes for students Mm-hmm. is taking up so much brain space that the technology only gets like 10%. And so you've right. got to be real careful not to overload that. All right, y'all, let's uh, speak a little bit more to AV technology. You've already been breaking it down a bit, um, but I want to hone in on everything from digital signage to camera fixtures to assistive technology for listening and video conferencing. How has AV tech supported this transition to online and hybridized uh, learning models? What has worked? What hasn't worked? Go ahead and break that down for us. The pro AV hasn't like necessarily super helpful. Again, we're we're having to sort of democratize this and or not democratize, right. but spread it out. And everyone's got to do this at home. So it's interesting. I'm usually a person who's fairly allergic to introducing consumer technology into the teaching space. And what I've you know had to kind of come to grips with was that's all I can use now. Whether we like it or not, that consumer technology is sort of purpose built to be low barrier to entry, easy to use, easy to plug in. So it was weird having to kind of fill my shopping cart with things like gorilla pods and uh, Logitech webcams and um, you know Yeti mics and things like that because it's absolutely Absolutely nothing that I would buy to use on our campus proper. Digital signage, um, we've only introduced digital signage sort of legitimately in the last year or so. We don't really even know how we want to use digital signage per se. And then that happened right as COVID happened. So we didn't even get a chance to like go through the growing pains of tech digital signage normally. Uh, and so what it largely became is just a, a great sort of broadcast tool in the spaces that had it to give them good like health and safety tips if you were on campus. Um, and then also to provide announcements to students who were living in the dorms to know when certain things were going on or where certain resources were that they could get. Come back on campus for fall semester. We've got teaching from home and faculty teaching from campus. So we had... Uh, not only the, the stuff we needed for teachers at home, but we had to get classrooms ready. Uh, one of the biggest challenges was when faculty came back into the classroom, they wanted to go back to their whiteboards. And whiteboards and cameras don't get along real well over Zoom. They just, <laughs> resolution is terrible. You know, trying to find stuff to 
technology, whether it be document cameras or uh, interactive displays or whatever it was to get faculty away from that into something that looks good on Zoom, looks good on video conferencing systems, you know, that provides some clarity at home. So, you know, we had a lot of this infrastructure already in place, but we didn't have cameras in classrooms. We didn't have some of this other stuff. So we had ballpark 300 classrooms. We were trying to prep for all semester. UT in September was gearing up to conduct classes really predominantly. You know, UC Merced was already saying, you know, we're, we're announcing all classes online, uh, you know, here in, in the West. So you were kind of in a different approach mode. Uh, and, and you went from having, I believe, five cameras in 300 classrooms to now putting in over 250 uh, quickly, but without, without concept, which is typically the procedure that, you know, university was to go through. So what was that experience like? At the start of the semester, it was uh, gave me a few gray hairs. Uh, you know, we had, uh, yeah, like I said, we were, we were buying equipment without a design. We were buying equipment with not even fully knowing what we were going to do. And then implementing a bunch of stuff with unproven, you know, with an unproven concept. So, yeah, we had some challenges when the fall semester started. And we had to get those fixed quickly because if it's not fixed quickly, faculty you know, quickly become upset with it and going to use it. So, you know, getting into the fall semester was a challenge because we had a lot of it. Uh, we had a lot of it on campus. And, and that's a key question, Mike, now that you have, you know, something like, you know, cameras in every classroom, what's the what's the training going to be like? And what's the what do you perceive the adoption to be like with the instructors, because again, some of them like it, some of them don't, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, we need to, we need to start accommodating for both that, you know, potentially we're going to go from online to hybrid to really in person, but there's going to be a combination for quite some time, if not forever. I mean, you know, e even the institutions that didn't offer much distance learning, I think are going to offer more. Not It's not like it's going to be uh, their main way of delivering, but there, there's going to be that combination. And so, you know, getting people to adopt the technology, I think, is going to be a challenge. What's UT looking at to try to help with that? We're, you know, we're in the process of really evaluating what that's going to look like post-COVID, you know, we, we've got this technology there. We want to continue to use it. We also understand to fully engage and fully educate the students. It's, it's very helpful that they're in the classroom, but also if a student has to miss, whether they're sick, whether they have to be out of town, you, it's going to allow us the ability to still let them participate uh, if, if they have to miss a class for whatever reason. So I think that's kind of what the approach is right now. I think we're still going to have to accommodate for, again, that student that maybe doesn't want to attend or that feels sick and there's, you know, some some concern about coming on campus. And 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 really that speaks to, how, you know, how do we create with maybe using some of this technology, that culture so that they they can actually feel that, you know, even if they have to stay home for a short period of time, we can use the technology for them to feel attached. Uh, and that's maybe, you know, just using confidence monitors so that they feel like they're still maintaining eye, maintaining mm -hmm. eye contact out of the room. You know, there, there's just so many good 
opportunities for us to create a positive experience. And, um, you know, every institution is, is different, uh, that I've seen, especially around budgets and refresh cycles and staffing and support, but some of these common trends, like how do we maintain that culture, uh, so that students want to attend, uh, the, the university with the, with the types of technologies that we're supporting. I think, um, I think there's a great opportunity for us to look at that further. We went in after the semester started and everything from maybe moving where a camera was located to make it a better experience for the students because just how these, in certain rooms, how they were teaching in them just didn't align with where we set things up because we, like I said, we were trying to do 250 plus classrooms in just a few weeks by the time we got equipment. So there was no time to go, you know, heavily engage the faculty on where, how we wanted to lay these out. We were just doing. Yeah. I mean, higher education is going to have to do some real soul searching coming out of this as far as what their campuses and the, the programs and things are going to look like, whether they're in person or remote. And I guess, you know, comparatively, we were fortunate. I had a ton of contingency plans about what if they pulled triggers and said, we're going to have to put cameras in classrooms and, you know, based on the, our governor's sort of guidance and the system level guidance, we largely been remote both in this past spring the fall, and it looks like in this spring as well, we will be basically 99% remote. So I haven't had to launch any of those contingency plans, but I don't envy Mike at all because the idea of, you know, it's already hard enough in capital projects to convince the electrician, the architect, the mechanical person, I need my camera there. I need my projector there. Well, why? Well, there's rules around, you know, image registration and being able to see things. And, you know, you can't put a pendant light in front of the projector screen. It may look pretty, but when it's on, it's going to wash out the image, <laughs> right? Like there's, there's all these fights we have to have in a capital engagement, let alone in these renovative environments where it's like, I'm going to need you to open that wall. Really? Yes, that that is the spot for the camera. Well, I really don't want to do that. Well, you know, and, and then who who kind of wins that fight? Now we're talking about the quality of delivery of education, you know, that you've got to start having the campus leadership behind you. And so that's something that I always liked that my CIO did was right from the get-go, start start an education with the campus leadership around timelines. How long would it take to do these things? If, you know, what are the drop dead dates? You have to make a decision. Uh, and that was really helpful because it made sure that I had sort of the confidence that, okay, we're going into fall. That's not happening. And as we approached spring, I started asking those same questions. And so there's, everyone's got to be in sync to make these kind of technologies work because the technology is, is an augmentation, you know, fundamentally, you know, the, the faculty and, and like the curriculum development teams and instructional designers should be coming to me, in my opinion, should be coming to me and saying, we want to deliver courses in this way. Is there technology out there that will help make this easier or better? And the answer is either yes or no, right? Like, I don't want to be the person saying, I'm putting this technology in the room and you will teach this way around the technology. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that's the <laughs> absolute wrong way to do it. But it's hard to get people to understand that there's it's more of a teeter-totter and less of a ordered list of check this box, move to the next thing. It's really a cultural thing on campus with how you know, they're set up to teach today and, and really how they want to teach in the future. 
and and I agree. There's a lot more conversation being uh, had uh, currently with instructional design, professional development. Some some institutions are adding professional development as part of their services because the teachers weren't necessarily uh, trained in how to use that. So how do we, if we're going to adopt this, you know, how do we effectively train and uh, you know on how to deliver this type of of a message in this environment? And so I agree with you, Joden and Mike. There's there is a, just a lot more conversation on this, which I think is. Uh, you know, I think it's positive. Again, it's it really going to give us the opportunity to potentially change our thinking and broaden our strategy uh, to, you know, hopefully, uh, as we all want, uh, have that better uh, learning experience. All right, Mark, Brad, I want to uh, ask a question y'all's way since um, most of the conversation here has been to pull from Mike and Joden's on the ground perspectives. Since both of y'all are uh, you know deep on the integrator side of supplying this technology to the higher education space, uh, to expand on this further beyond just the University of Tennessee, Knoxville and UC Merced, uh, how have you both seen the challenges that Mike and Joden have been breaking down materializing at any other higher education institutions? Are you seeing the same? Are you seeing anything different or unique? Go ahead and pull from your insights a bit. You know, we, we've we've seen, I'm sure Brad has seen, you know, just as many diverse different different situations, right? And, and one theme I would say, uh, which Joan alluded to earlier, it kind of shines through. And, and that's the, the universities that understand that technology is in place to enhance the learning experience and not create the learning experience. Those are the universities that typically are are a, a, ahead of the curve when it comes to, you know, taking taking risks and, and, and doing things that are a little more counterculture. Right. I mean, we've we've also seen that, again, from our standpoint, we really divide that classroom instruction, I guess, or the, the physicality of the classroom. We divide it into four different four different categories, right? So we take these four different categories and a hundred percent of the learning that that happens within an institution fits into one of these buckets, right? So you've got, you know, uh, larger screens, smaller rooms, less students, right? Kind of like a huddle space. Okay. Well, if we can't do that based on local rules and regulations, then we've got larger rooms, larger screens with distance students. So that's kind of repurposing um, some of our larger classrooms and spacing students out, right? Then we've got personal space, personal screens, remote students, which is that 100% remote learning model, which is what a lot of us, especially those on the West Coast are in right now. And then you've got mid-sized rooms, multiple screens, and then present and remote students, which is what I, I think Joden referred to earlier, which in my opinion is the true hybrid model, right? So you've got a few students in the room that are socially distanced. You've got a professor that maybe have a confidence monitor, and you may have monitors behind those physical students. So I say all that to say that the universities that can kind of, let's say, productize the different types of classrooms. And then also, as Joden said earlier, are are leading the conversation in this is how we want to teach. What technology do we need to 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 implement? Right. Those is the those are the, the scenarios of the schools that we've seen that have been the most successful uh, throughout this time period. Yeah. And, and I'll jump in, you know, from Diversified's standpoint as an integrator, you know, our biggest part of this formula is really and every institution is different with where they're at with technology. And it's really exposed, you know, that through this, you know, crises potentially. And if you 
you know, look at again, you know, where they're at with budgets, refresh cycles, you know, staffing, all of those things that, you know, all of those things have to come into consideration when we're recommending technology. But certainly there are the trends are similar across the universities, again, with lecture capture and digital signage and and those types of things. I think that uh, as the universities rethink technology and what technology they bring on, they're going to be considering what, you know, what does the long term future look like? And do we add or do we need touchless systems? Do we need a button, you know, start as uh, instructors go into the room or start their lecture capture? So they, you know, so it, maybe it's automatic instead of having them push a button so that they don't have to forget. It's it's things like that that. You know, we're asking the questions because there's all there is all kinds of different technologies that we can provide. Uh, but what's right for the university? Do uh, you know, are they going to use QR codes to start up a, a meeting? Are they going to have occupancy sensors, which starts up the equipment and automatically starts the class? You know, there's a lot of scheduling of classes from instruction, instructional design uh, so that the, the instructors don't have to do that themselves. So there's so many different opportunities for us as an integrator to help. Uh, but I really, it, it's just us showing up, getting on calls, listening, and, and really trying to fit into whatever formula the institution is 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 trying to set up. Uh, again, we're all part of this educational ecosystem. Uh, you know, uh, the manufacturer, the integrator, the institution. Uh, we're all trying to partner to to get that outcome and that output the best that we can do. So there's, uh, I really am excited about the opportunity to listen and to to offer any of the the new technologies that are available. There's there's just some really great things coming. The, the touchless stuff is interesting you mentioned because I certainly was looking into and you know, I, I'm sure Mike's had to deal with it. There's the the whole post-class teardown. You know, you have to sanitize things. You have to disinfect things. And uh, with technology, the amount of chemicals or products you can use is fairly limited because it's very easy for them to cause damage or harm to things. And so we had to like engage with our custodial staff right away and say, don't touch the technology. We will figure out how to do that. But yeah, it'd be great to see like some of the uh, control system manufacturers really dig in on ambient uh, interactions with spaces because I don't see that. You know, I know some of them are leaning or putting their, you know, they're, they're chips behind Amazon, but there are some privacy concerns with Amazon um, and Google. So I know that it's not easy to stand those things up in-house, but I would like to hope or see those opportunities where we can have minimal touch or minimal engagement, even just as a, a nice thing going forward, let alone in sort of the COVID era. Yeah, and I think there's some variations of that taking place, Joden, with, you know, like, uh, you know, microarray systems that you can put in the ceiling now. So, you know, less touch points mm -hmm. in the classroom, less things that you have to clean. Um, but, you know, how do those all come together, you know, when we create, uh, you know, that touchless environment as a standard, potentially, that's a whole different conversation. I agree. Yeah. And, and I would to, to say that also with the, the ceiling mics, because I showed people like this is what a ceiling mic would, you know, a beam former would cost. Mm. And like, well, that's expensive. And I was like, yes, but how much does it cost to staff my team or the janitorial custodial team to sweep a room? Like it, it brought into light also a lot of those sort of intangible costs, like an hourly rate for a person to perform tasks. Like how much does it cost per hour over an entire semester? to make sure a room is fit for instruction versus this one-time cost 
put a ceiling microphone in and walk away. That was a, a difficult conversation because it's fairly abstract to give form. Yeah, there's, I mean, the, you know, the, the occupancy sensor uh, technology, too, is also adding value in that touchless environment so that you can have systems turn off uh, or turn on when there's presence in the room. That's, you know, that that's valuable to an organization based upon just management, mm -hmm. uh, power uh, consumption, those types of things that take place. Mm -hmm. And so there's great opportunities to to look at more of that technology, which then just cuts down on the time where someone has to walk around and potentially turn a room on and off uh, or, you know, even go on the system and program for something like that. But it's really a it's really a, a, a fun topic, I think, right now. All right, team, a few more questions just to um, take all of these challenges, ways that universities have responded, and uh, just hone in on uh, some higher level industry conversation. So I think we see some interesting differences in what everyone's describing here when we, for example, compare Eastern schools versus Western schools responses across the U.S. So whereas many major cities and universities in the East right now are reopening and transitioning back to in-person schooling, universities in the West, especially in the California system, are still facing a lot of reoccurring lockdowns. I mean, just recently, the entire Bay Area uh, went back into lockdown until January. So these differences create different different technology responses. So when the West buys a lot of tech to support education at home, my question is, how does that translate back to the classroom? How do you make sure that the investments and the strategies for online and hybridized learning can be useful in the long term? What are y'all's thoughts? I think for the at-home technology, we've had some people ask us about that. And what we've told them is this technology will still be great to do virtual office hours. Like, you know, there's some real advantages to virtual office hours because one student might have a question that five other students have. So you answer it for that one and the other five go away. And now that line gets dramatically shorter, faster, or you can have more thoughtful interactions with students because you can maybe be responding or giving simultaneously. So that's sort of how I think we're hoping this at-home technology turns into a more long-term investment to give faculty the flexibility to engage with students remotely and still have a, a, a good experience they can give them, even if it's one-to-one -one or one-to-some. I agree with a lot of that. Even, you know, here where we are getting back back on campus, yeah, a lot of that stuff that we had in place to teach, and we still have a lot of faculty teaching from home, so it's not we're not entirely on campus. But yes, being able to do continue to do some of that stuff virtually is going to be a big plus. It's I don't think it's going to be one or the other. I think we're going to end up with with combinations of both, and it's going to you know it's going to be a process to get figure out where that line is and and what's what's right for each university. And Mike, you at one point in time were talking about uh, the campus was going to put out a survey to the instructors about, you know, hey, we've now got this, uh, you know, in-person online experience coming back into the classroom. You know, what are their expectations? H have you conducted any of that or, or, or are you looking at, and what's that, what's the outcome of that? You know, the biggest outcome, and I kind of addressed this uh, a little earlier is, you know, one, they want to be able to use their whiteboards to do this. The learning glass technology is, you know, it's an every classroom type solution to be able to do it, do it online as well. There's that in, you know, the technology themselves is a challenge for some faculty. It's, it's, you know, when you do a survey, you'll, you'll take the same room and you'll have some people that talk about how the technology doesn't work, 
but the next person talks about how it's been so helpful to them. So right. <laughs> what works is, you know, that kind of depends on, on the person using it as well. Uh, yeah, man, does that ring true? I, I, I love how you keep bringing up whiteboards because they are for capture the absolute bane of my existence because there's just <laughs> every yes. camera tries real hard and, <laughs> and none of them can quite do it. And and when you show them a document camera, which is literally a glorified horizontal whiteboard that gets mm -hmm. picked up by the lecture capture and the big giant screen in the room. And it looks very good. <laughs> and trying to connect those dots is it's a it's an interesting. It's, I've worked really hard with my uh, center for teaching and learning. Like, help me bridge this gap. How do we how do we yeah. lead this particular horse to this particular body of water? Because I think once they drink, they're gonna be like, why didn't I drink this delicious water years ago? It's amazing. You know, early on, uh, math is uh, here has been a very very heavy user of document cameras. So the first question nice. they had when we went went online was how do i get this into zoom because they wanted to continue to use that so certain people yes they were very adept to them and they absolutely loved them uh you know brad can tell you we buy a lot of them <laughs> and because you got you got certain users that are just absolutely love them but others of them just you know really want to stand in front of that board you know i think the commonality here is that we're looking at trying to involve professional development and instructional design more in the conversation when we start adding technology. And I think, again, you know, hopefully these are positive trends for us all to come together uh, in in recommending, you know, what the university is going to use, what the culture, you know, what culture they want to create with regards to the technology and the learning. And all of this, I think, you know, this environment that we're in today is creating this opportunity uh, where I don't know if we've had we would have that opportunity if 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 you know the COVID uh, situation you know w wasn't here now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, I, I think that we have an opportunity to to use this situation to again change our thinking, broaden our strategy, and not the best uh, situation around. COVID that's forcing that, but um, there is an opportunity here for us to come together, I believe, as a community and and, and address these things. Yeah, Brad, as, uh, I'd like to add to that, too. I mean, you know, just what you're saying, I mean, the again, the universities that we're seeing that are thriving in this time frame are not creating technology and creating teaching environments to get through the pandemic, right? They're, they're creating robust teaching environments for the future. So we, we've got schools in the Northeast that have eliminated the idea of a snow day or eliminated the idea of shutting down classes because of inclement weather that doesn't exist anymore, right? I mean, you, you, you've got a robust online learning platform now to where everybody can stay home for a couple of days to keep everybody safe from, from snow and ice, and you can continue. Then we also look at the fact that, again, if you're creating a robust platform, not just to get you through the pandemic, but for the future, what can that do for your enrollment numbers, right? And your reach across the, the world in terms of, now I, I can offer the same level of educational experience to someone who is on campus, post-pandemic and to someone who was in a different country. So now I can I can increase my enrollment numbers, right? Because again, we're not building technology to get us through the pandemic. We're building out the technology for the for the future. Your gut makes you want to be tactical in a moment like this, but exactly. being strategic, keep your head level is really what you need. 
Right. And again, I mean, it's, it's those, it's that long-term thinking, right? Of course, the pandemic made us shift into that tactical mode. I like the way you put that, but as I always say, you can't predict the future, but you can definitely anticipate change. The pandemic will, will end eventually. Right. Mm. And either we're going to have millions of dollars of unused tech in professors, homes and students, homes, that's not doing anything because we've all reverted back to the traditional classroom, physical mentality, or we're going to use these investments that we've made to get us through the pandemic to, again, eliminate simple things like the snow day and increase enrollment, just, you know, being able to reach more people. Huge opportunity, huge opportunity. I agree. All right. Next question for the group. A crucial part of the university experience, obviously, is the culture. It's what gets people excited about the university experience. And it's often the make or break decider for a lot of students. You know, obviously, you know, scholarships and (laughs) the programs themselves play a part. But, you know, if you're torn between two different universities and one has a more exciting big campus culture or that small artsy culture that you're looking for, for, that's going to play a major factor in whether or not said student goes to the school. So without all of this in, you know, crucial experience, uh, integration into college town tradition, sports, arts, etc. How do you create a fresh digital culture or maintain an existing culture during this COVID period? And how do you see technologies supporting any of those endeavors? I'd, I'd like to start with with one thing, man, that is that has been very pressing through this entire thing and that's what we don't realize what social organizations and campus groups mean to the college experience right we've we've focused on the education piece we've we've got that we've got our systems in place to be able to to have the remote platforms but what about those small groups what about the fraternities right what about the what about the sororities what what about the, the 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 care groups and things like that i think creating a digital community over Zoom or, you know, a platform to be able to, to link students together so that they can share their experience and have their meetings and things like that is extremely important for the university experience. Right. And that's speaking personally from somebody who was involved in student government. And again, you know, fraternities and things like that. That's as much as important as the educational experiences when you're on a college campus. I think the other thing, too, is just the idea of being able to tour a campus. I mean, you know, when you're in that process of selecting schools, it's been a couple of decades for me, but you're in that process of selecting schools. One of the most exciting things was physically going to that campus and putting yourself in that environment and imagining, imagining yourself, you know, on the quad or in the, in the auditorium or at the cafeteria, whatever, uh, and, and kind of placing yourself there physically. I think every university should invest in some type of virtual tour platform. Right. Um, To make sure that they can still communicate the benefits of physically being on campus to incoming students, because, again, the value has been lost. Right. Because our students now, you know, one university doesn't look much different than the other if both platforms are hosted on uh, Zoom. Right. So I think those are two areas that we can definitely focus on. Yeah, for me, it's just like the faculty. I'm not the expert on building social networks or social engagement. We have our office of student life. We have our student government. And and I want them to come to me and tell me what ideas they have. And I'm happy to provide technology that could enhance or facilitate those things. But I I don't want to pretend walking into a room that I'm going to know how to solve that particular problem. And I think some colleges have also done fairly well in embracing 
digital trends. So it's uh, Irvine, for example, in the UC system built an entire esports complex. And I imagine that just because people can't go to that complex to play games on those really nice computers, I bet they're still holding gaming tournaments. I bet. Mm-hmm. So it's like there's some sense of you need to build your experiences to be digital somewhat out the gate. And then that way to transition, it's it's way easier. You're not having to kind of reverse engineer it. Absolutely. But a lot of colleges still aren't into esports. They're 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 str- they're shying away from it. It's it's a really polarizing sort of topic. Yeah, we had just uh, actually built an esports room here. It never really fully got open before we shut down. So that's oh no. Yeah, on this little bit, I think one of the reasons the university here was wanting to get students back on campus is they understand that that importance of this the social interaction, the the being together. While you can do it over digitally, you can have meetings. It's not the same. Face-to-face and and over a computer, there is no comparison between the two. It's uh, Some people do fine over computer. Other people just really, you know, really need to be face-to-face so they can, because they read body language, they read some of the other stuff that's harder to do over a computer. Yeah, Mike, I think if I mean, if I go back into the classroom for an example of that culture, uh, there, there are some great videos out there already created on, on this um, active learning space and and what that's done. And what you hear in some of these videos is the instructor saying for the first time, you know, I feel like my students are learning what I what I think they need to learn to master my my class. And from the student's perspective and out of the student's words, you hear we're learning in a sense of community. The, the idea that students just want to have their club meetings be on Zoom is is not what they're looking for, for sure. We've already seen that working with our auspices of student life to create opportunities and, and use technology for that. The challenge is sometimes that because there's a standard or a product that everyone has already sort of coalesced around introducing sort of best in breed technology that shares like 80% of the functionality, but provides a unique or distinct experience that elevates a particular type of topic is, is a really difficult conversation to have. Like, well, why isn't this good enough? You can do everything you want in here. And so sometimes I find that our role as technology experts is trying to draw those lines and make people understand like, yeah, this does do that. But, you know, it's very different when you present 10 people in the Brady Bunch style and you present 10 people in a a different configuration that more resembles that social interaction. And that's, you know, then there's just brass tacks, it's money. And it's hard to say like, why are we supporting two tools that are largely the same? Mm-hmm. Certain challenges, that's for sure. All right, y'all, we're running up on our time here for the day. So I've just got one main question for you here to wrap up. How important has partnerships been for supporting these initiatives? And uh, for um, Mike and Joden, feel free to give perspective from the university side and then Mark and Brad as the integrators uh, give us some perspective from that side, how it has uh, impacted you in supporting higher education's needs during this time. The relationships we have with vendors and more for us more so with vendors and manufacturers, although we do have uh, certain manufacturers we have pretty close relationships with, it was absolutely essential for all of this. As I mentioned early on, we just trying to get equipment you know when you're trying to buy large volumes that's not the time to develop relationships with uh with vendors you've got to have that 
the ones that already had that in place and had that good relationship, you know, they knew who to turn to. They knew uh, where to go. And and the vendors work hard for, for people they've got long-term relationships with to try to get them that stuff. So it's, for us, you know, it was critical. It was, it's, it's not the time to go and just try to find whatever you can, wherever you can. It's having, having those people working on your behalf is very, very important. Oh, I absolutely agree. Like, I think that goes back to the idea, you know, analogizing that, you know, if you don't build a program to sort of be digital as inception, it may not succeed digitally when it has to be. And it's the same thing going into this. If I Mm -hmm. didn't already have good relationships with vendors and integrators, and, you know, I would still reach out to to them and say, what if, and what if, and what if, and they were happy Mm -hmm. to entertain those what ifs and be prepared. Like, okay, I'm going to, this is it. We're doing it. I got 30 days. Let's rock and roll. And I don't think if I hadn't sort of spent my time curating those relationships, that would have been very difficult. And I think that works on the inside of the university as well. You know, there's the externalities of it, but then internally you have to be talking with and building coalitions with the other organs that go into delivering the campus experience. So the decisions that are being made are both good for them and then potentially have synergy. Ugh, I said the word, uh, (laughs) you know, ways to work across the campus world, not just maybe only serving one particular function. Yeah, I think our job, again, as an integrator has been to listen, talk to the institutions and engage our manufacturing partners um, to to really present future roadmaps. Where's the technology going so that we can really inform and prepare and um, set up the university for success. I mean, the universities are ultimately going to choose their path, uh, and and our job is to make sure that they're uh, they're they're well armed and well informed, uh, and that's really a combination of just communication and partnership with the manufacturers. Super important for us uh, again in that ecosystem. And and definitely add to to what Brad is saying. I mean, from the university level all the way through our integrators, you guys are really our eyes and ears on on, you know, what you need, what's going on, what are the challenges, right? What are some success stories? We ultimately have the responsibility as manufacturers to try to create what solves the problems um, for, you know, our, our integrators and our end users. Not understanding the problems does not help us when we're trying to create uh, products to, to solve the problems, right? So we, we do a lot of fact finding, as Brad said, we, we do a lot of, uh, you know, question and answer. We do a lot of, definitely a lot of listening. Um, and then of course the importance of roadmaps, right? So we can, again, help you anticipate change and help you kind of predict the future in a sense to say, well, if I commit to this particular model, it's going to be around for the next two to years. So I've got some security in that, or I need a feature that you guys don't have, you know, is there going to be a firmware update that, that, that you're going to be able to take care that so again you guys are our, our eyes and ears um, those relationships are extremely important to our business because we don't want to create things that that nobody needs so to speak right so at the end of the day uh, we value every link in the chain because um, that's what makes you know everybody successful all right y'all thank you so much for joining us on the podcast i think that does it for our panel conversation today on the technology shifts in higher education and the importance of adapting strategically to make sure students and educators get the best experience possible again we've been chatting with our four panelists mike berger it manager of classroom technology at the university of tennessee knoxville Joden belafato technology enhanced spaces lead analyst at u UC Merced, 
Mark Knox, Vertical Solutions Sales Consultant for Sharp NEC Display Solutions, and Brad Thomas, Director for the Product Solutions Group at Diversified. Mike, Joden, Mark, Brad, it's really been a pleasure today. Thank you so much for joining us, and I'm looking forward to chatting again soon. So let's stay in touch. The vaccine is around the corner, which I'm sure is going to impact the higher education space tremendously. So as those shifts impact the space, we'll uh, be sure to continue these conversations. So thanks again. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. Thanks. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's podcast. If you like what you heard and want to listen to more industry vertical conversations, you can subscribe to our various podcast channels on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or for a full catalog of shows, head to our website, marketscale.com slash industries. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.